You're listening to Living Healthy Longer by the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging. I thought I would share with you sort of the beginnings of what we know about prions and and how we know that in the connection to One Health and the connection to a veterinary pathologist. There is a disease called Kuru uh, that occurs or occurred in people in New Guinea, in Papua New Guinea, the four tribe. And this disease was causing individuals at a very young age to to present with diseases that looked very much like an Alzheimer's disease or a disease that was neurodegenerative. And they didn't really know the origin of it. And so a, a couple of individuals went and to Papua New Guinea and they spent time in there in the 1950s trying to better understand what was happening. And in the end, they were ended up looking at brain tissue because, again, this is a neurodegenerative disease. And they published this. And a veterinary pathologist at the time, his name is William Hadlow, was also studying another disease in sheep called Scrapey. And when he saw this publication and he saw the images that were there, he thought, wow, this is very much like Scrapey. And so he contacted these two MDs that had been working on this project. And between the two of them, uh, set up a series of experiments that showed indeed that this disease was very much like Scrapey, but it was occurring in humans. And I, this is really a very interesting story. And there's a book actually called The Deadly Feast by Richard Rhodes that is an incredible sort of foray into the history of this disease in humans. That's also a disease and now we know many other mammalian species as well. And how that connection was made between some MDs, a veterinary pathologist, and to me that just encapsulates what One Health really is about, is bringing folks together with expertise across diverse pictures to answer questions in science. Whether it's Kuru in the people of New Guinea or Scrapies in sheep, the disease that Associate Professor Candace Mathiason is discussing today belongs to a class known as transmissible spongiform encephalopathies, otherwise known as prion diseases. Prions are a type of protein that are found throughout the body, but most abundantly in the brain and the nervous system. We all have prions, but for some people, for some unknown reason, their prion proteins will malfunction and trigger normal proteins in the brain to fold abnormally. Eventually, these misfolded proteins can aggregate. They clog up the cells and cause neurodegenerative diseases like Kuru, which are infectious and can be spread between individuals. Today, Dr. Mathiasen from CSU's Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Pathology is talking to us about chronic wasting disease, a prion disease that affects wildlife such as deer, elk, and moose. Researchers are interested in studying prion diseases in other species as models for Alzheimer's and dementia in humans. So in this episode, Dr. Mathiason describes the approach her lab is taking to develop tests that can detect Alzheimer's earlier in the disease's progression. I hope you enjoy. I'm your host, Hannah Hallisker, and this is Living Healthy Longer, 
a podcast from the Columbine Health System Center for Healthy Aging at Colorado State University. So Candy, thank you for coming on our podcast. (laughs) It's my honor. I'm happy to be here today. So take me back to the start of your career as a pathologist Mm. and how did you end up having the lab that you have today? Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about the disease you study. Sure, I can do that. So I'm a, I'm a pathobiologist, and I specialize in prions. I studied before studying prions, I studied retroviruses, so diseases like feline leukemia virus, feline immunodeficiency virus. Um, both of those de- diseases have human counterparts. Um, in particular, the FIV disease that we were just studying is very similar to HIV. These are really long protracted disease courses, and so it takes multiple years before an, an animal that is infected starts showing clinical disease of the infection. However, during that time frame, we know that the disease can be shed. And so I was studying that with Dr. Ed Hoover here at CSU, and a graduate student came in, Christina Sigurdsson, and was really interested in what was going on on the forefront of these cervid species here in this area, and wanted to look at it. We were surprised by this, quite honestly, um, to have someone coming in wanting to look at this because I, you know, we really didn't know the full scope of it. But once we started to better understand and realizing that this too is a disease that has a prolonged incubation period, um, at the time we didn't know anything about the shedding or how the disease was even spread between individuals. So we became interested in that and of course our first thought was we just hadn't found the right virus, in particular retrovirus, associated with this disease. And so we started from that angle and I spent many many months a couple years actually looking to see if we could find the retrovirus associated with this disease chronic wasting disease in um, at the time captive animals we now know that that's a disease also free-ranging animals so I was at sort of a, a, a crossroads in my own life in trying to decide what I wanted to do. I am a late bloomer, went back and got my PhD in my 40s, and my choices were I could have continued to study the feline diseases, or I could jump on board with this really novel, unique disease that was being seen in, in cervids that we knew there was a disease similar to it, like in humans as well as in sheep. And so I jumped on board chronic wasting disease and started looking at that My work really has been looking at how is the disease spread? How does disease get into a cervid? What happens to it when it's in the body? And then how does it get back out again and shed into the environment for the next susceptible cervid species to contract the disease? Mm -hmm. So I think there's a few definitions that we're gonna need here in the beginning. I'm just just hearing some of them. Reminders for myself are good too. So cervid species are elk, Moose, deer, is that Mm -hmm. correct? Reindeer, yep, are all cervid species, correct. Okay, and then retroviruses. Mm -hmm. Tell us what those are. Right, this is an RNA virus, and you probably think of it more uh, when you think about HIV, our human immunodeficiency virus, and the impact that it's had on several populations over time. So a retrovirus is this very slow-progressing disease that has a, a, a lymphoid, so it gets into the blood, and is able to spread in the body through the blood and then it impacts different organ systems in the individual over time. But it can take uh, 
years or even an entire lifespan for an individual to show clinical disease. We now have great therapeutics for HIV that people are living longer and healthier uh, with HIV now. And so that that's the retrovirus in humans. There's a counterpart in domestic cats and non-domestic cats called feline immunodeficiency virus. Same disease course, just in a different mammalian species. And we have used that mammalian species to try to better understand HIV. So many of the therapeutics that came to HIV, many of them were initiated um, in cat studies. Mm, Okay, really interesting. So then chronic wasting disease is not a retroviral disease? It is not a retroviral disease. It's a prion disease. It's a prion disease. So that's a new word. Tell us what prions are because that's the connector between what you study and aging studies. Right, exactly, it is. So uh, prion diseases are proteinaceous infectious diseases. They do not have nucleic acid, so no DNA, no RNA has been associated with the core of the infectious agent. And so those studies had been done in the, literally some of those studies started in the 1960s, where several people were working and better understanding that this disease did not, it was not like any other disease that we knew, and that it was only that proteinaceous component that was causing a templating mechanism or a structure change that was allowing this disease then to become more prominent in individuals. There are sporadic forms of prion diseases. So the sporadic form of Kruchad-Jakob disease in humans usually occurs about one in a million individuals worldwide. Then we have these other agents, and we don't think of that as being an infectious disease. So it doesn't transmit from one individual to another. So Alzheimer's disease falls in that category. Parkinson's disease, diabetes, ALS are all diseases that are similar. So they have prion-like mechanisms of that structure change, but are not infectious. The part of the diseases that I historically have been working on in prions are those that are both infectious and transmissible. So they Mm -hmm. readily transmit from the host that's infected with them, somehow get out of the body, and then initiate disease in a new individual that's susceptible to it. It's a very big difference between those that may have some infectious components but are not transmissible two individuals. And so that's the connecting point of the work that I've been doing in prions over time, in in particular chronic wasting disease, developing assays to be able to detect them early in disease process, better understanding the disease course. And our, our hope is that we can use many of the assays that we've been developing to be able to better understand aging and to better understand the timing of amyloid deposition in individuals that maybe don't age as well, that they have Alzheimer's or they end up with Parkinson's or some other disease. Can we determine by looking in the blood or in other body fluids to see where that protein misshapen component is early in disease that would allow for intervention strategies, therapeutics, or, you know, there's much like nutrition, exercise. I think there are a lot of other um, potential ways that they could be changed. But that's the research that's ongoing right now. Yeah. So you're essentially taking this background that you have in retrovirals and applying the way you would, you know, approach HIV, FIV, all these different ones to 
aging and Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, we definitely are. And I think back and forth, both the aging community as well as the prion community, we've really learned from one another. And it's been um, a, a real nice catalyst to be able to have um, the development of the work that we're doing help both fields, quite honestly. Yeah. So let's talk about prions a little bit more, yeah. specifically with chronic wasting disease, because I think that's a just a good example of how a prion disease works. Mm-hmm. So tell me how that originates. Yeah. And how it trans it's transmitted right. between species. Yeah, certainly. I, um, it's a really interesting story, and it's really what got me excited about working in prions. We did not know how CWD transmitted from one individual to the other. We knew from some past studies, observation studies, that if you put animals in a pen where other animals had chronic wasting disease, that eventually the new animals coming in would develop the disease somewhere around two years after being exposed to that environment. So we had some idea that the environments were being contaminated because there was no direct contact between individuals. And so some of the first studies that we did here at CSU we're looking just at that. We looked at things that were shed from the cervid species. And so we've been able to do that in a captive facility where we can look at the point source inoculums. So we looked at urine, we looked at feces, we looked at saliva, looked at blood to try to get a better understanding whether there was any of this infectious agent present in those shed materials. And we found that indeed all of those materials contain infectivity. And we now, after 20 years of these experiments, we now know that very, very very small quantities, so anywhere from 100 to 300 nanograms, which is an extremely small amount of prion, can actually initiate disease and cause the disease to um, end up in a neurodegenerative state, or the animal to end up in a neurodegenerative state. So an elk, for example, Mm -hmm. they eat infected something? Mm-hmm. Is that the way they, they get it? Yeah, so they, these infectious agents are shed out into the environment or they're shed between one another. In maternal herds, there's lots of exchange of saliva um, between animals, and so we know there's really high concentrations of infectivity in the saliva. So they may just be uh, connecting with one another. But we also know that those other components, urine, saliva, feces, we now also know that the pregnancy microenvironment contains infectivity as well. We know that vertical transmission can occur from mother to offspring Mm -hmm. during, during pregnancy, that that can occur as well. CWD is the most efficiently transmitted of all the prion diseases. So all those things, if you think about those things being shed into the environment and carcasses of animals, right, that die naturally in the environment also are going to be contaminating. So anything that those prions cling to, um, another really interesting story about prions is that they last a really, really long time. They are very, very stable. There's a study that was done in Iceland many years ago in which, again, coming back to Scrapey, the sheep were in a fenced area. They had Scrapey. They removed all those sheep and removed much of the soil around that area, left it vacant for 16 years, brought new susceptible sheep into that environment, and those sheep became infected with CWD, or excuse me, with Scrapey. The same thing is true of CWD. You can clean out an environment and there's still sufficient infectivity present there for it to transmit, which comes back to what we now know from experimental studies is that it takes very small quantities of prion to infect. To infect. Mm -hmm. So they ingest this somehow Mm -hmm. 
And when we say prions, it's a misfolded protein in the brain. It's a protein that's gone haywire in the brain. Right. So how does it go from something that they consume to traveling through the bloodstream to affect their brain is how I assume that happens. Yeah, let me start back by saying that the the normal form of the prion protein, all mammals have this protein. It's called the prion protein now. It's a normal cellular form. Um, so the structure of it, we know what that structure looks like because we've been able to solubilize it and look at it from just a single monomer component. So we know what that looks like. We don't really know what its function is. It's kind of a jack of all trades, master of none, because if you remove that protein, animals seem to survive just fine. There have been some mouse studies um, looking at that. What happens when the infectious form or the sporadic form come in contact with this normal cellular form? And I should also say that the highest expression of this protein is in the central nervous system, so in the brain, in the spinal cord. Yet all other tissues, all other cells express at least some of this prion protein, this normal form of the protein. So when the normal protein comes in contact with this abnormal form, whether it be a sporadic event that the structure of the protein just changes for some unknown reason, or it's the infectious agent from a prion-infected individual. It templates against that normal form of the protein and somehow coerces it into the abnormal form. And Mm -hmm. as that form continues to build, it grows this fibril chain. So you'll see another connection there, right, to Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, other diseases that are also protein misfolding disorders, where the normal protein somehow changes into this abnormal form, grows these fibrils, those fibrils start clogging up the cells, the cells die, and then you you get either a neurotoxic or you just get a a lack of the um, development of what that cell is supposed to be doing. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of another connection where those those two are as well. So you continue to get this aggregation, we call it, this fibril formation over time that becomes more advanced in the central nervous system. So we think about chronic wasting disease that it's likely ingestion that that the animals are ingesting this or eating these these misshapen and infectious forms of the protein. We now know that that protein can actually cross into the bloodstream as early as 15 to 30 minutes after infection. And these again, these are all experimental studies that we've done. And one of the things that we hope we'll be able to better understand about um, other human protein misfolding diseases, now that we know how to detect it in blood, can we use that same assay to be able to detect it in other human diseases? Once it gets into the blood, if one were to look at the vasculature or the blood system in an individual, at that point, it's getting to all parts of the body. And we know that there are certain areas, they're called lymph nodes, where prions accumulate more. Um, and that we know that they find their way back out into the system. They cross as well from the gut, through the gut, into uh, via nerves and via other cells, into the central nervous system, and then find their way up the spinal cord or find their way up what is called the vagus nerve, up to the brain, where there's, again, that massive amount of that normal cellular form of the protein that allows for a much higher rate of conversion in the brain of those individuals, which then leads, of course, to the neurodegeneration that one sees and the clinical signs um, and symptoms that individuals have of these diseases. Mm. And so people from popular culture might recognize mad cow disease as a prion disease. And Mm -hmm. so I think um, the thing to distinguish is that scrapies, mad cow disease, chronic wasting disease 
are all prion diseases that have similar pathobiology, but they're in a different species. So they essentially get a different name. Right. That's yeah. exactly why they get a different name, is yeah. to associate them with a species that they are um, infecting. Yeah, the interesting component about mad cow disease or bovine spongiform encephalopathy is that that is a disease that was man-made, man-manufactured, downward call cows, um, cows that can no longer walk, are, um, and well, they're not as much anymore. In the 80s, they were fed back and before. It's a great protein source to feed back into the bovine system. And so we created that by putting meat in bone meal, which contained the infectious agent, was not inactivated by the treatments that were being used in the rendering plants, put that back into cattle feed. That's how mad cow disease was actually initiated. And unfortunately, um, those cattle then went into the human food chain, and we had the variant form of Kruchfeld-Jakob disease. So we have that sporadic form that occurs in one in a million individuals. In the 1990s, after the BSC epidemic, which wiped out millions of cattle in the UK, there was this second disease state in humans that we now call the variant form. So a very similar clinical disease as the sporadic form, which affects individuals in their 60s and above typically, with the variant form from the consumption of BSE contaminated materials. Individuals were much younger, so teenagers, people below the age of 30 were contracting a similar disease. Very unfortunate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It just takes over as soon as it infects. Mm -hmm. It's wild. So... Let's talk, tease out this connection a little bit more Mm -hmm. between this templating mechanism that you're talking about where normal proteins butt up against abnormal proteins and kind of make them transition. Mm -hmm. Tell us more about how you're applying this to Alzheimer's and dementia studies now. Yeah, so my part in that is to, again, use the assays that we've spent the last 20 years developing to detect very small quantities of this abnormal protein and then substitute from the prion protein the proteins that are associated with Alzheimer's and and Parkinson's disease to see whether or not we can detect and how early we can detect. One of the things that I think is really interesting is as, as we age, one presumes that this amyloid is developing long before we know that we have it and are there ways that we could we could intercede and to better understand that one of the ways that we're doing this is is using a a canine system canine cognitive dysfunction or disorder in trying to again create a model system that we can branch over to humans and the the more that we work together with a variety of different models just makes it much more robust in our understanding of how to do that yeah. So canine cognitive dysfunction, CCD, is is the animal model you're talking about. Mm-hmm. We've talked to other researchers involved in that, Julie Moreno. Mm-hmm. Um, people who listen to the podcast might remember that episode. Um, so what's the, what's the long-term goal of that, that CCD work? Yeah, I think it's very similar to long-term goal of the work that we have here is to provide basic science research that will help with the intervention and therapeutic development for both animal diseases as well as human diseases. And it's, we call it translational research, right, is we can take what we learn from the systems that we're working in and apply that to humans to better human health. Yeah. 
Yeah, and listeners might also remember way back in season one, we actually did talk to Dean Vanderwood about Mm -hmm. the One Health approach. Mm -hmm. And so I hope, if anything, listeners can take away from this episode that there is immense value in looking at scrapies and mad cow disease and chronic wasting disease and learning from each of those different systems um, so that we can inform not only human health, but also animal health as well. Yeah, I think we're at such a great place here at CSU where we have a veterinary school, we have a medical school that's ongoing, we have the Center for Healthy Aging, we have the pre and Research Center. I, I think there are just a lot of connections and a lot of people that have these diverse perspectives, again, which is the One Health perspective, right, is how do you bring in all the different understandings we have, work together to try to increase the breadth and depth of our understanding of these disease processes in hopes that we can improve the health across all species, as well as the environment, right? I mean, I think yeah. that's a big part for um, for One Health as well, is trying to better understand how to take care of the environment and um, connect all those dots together. Yeah. And another thing I recall from the conversation with Julie was um, really the variety of different entry points that we can have for treatments for Alzheimer's and dementia, that it's likely not going to be a one size fits all kind of drug that you can take. It's going to have to be a multi-targeted approach with maybe multiple different drugs. And so that, again, like this could just be another way (laughs) of understanding the disease and how it progresses so that we can develop therapeutics for it. Yeah. And I think those collaborations, so Julie and Stephanie McGrath and I have been working together on this cognitive um, dog disease. And I think bringing in those perspectives, Stephanie's a DVM, so she is collecting the samples and she's doing scoring systems of the dog so that we can better understand, and as well as with dog owners, so that we can better understand the disease process. Julie is working very adamantly to find those therapeutic components and uses a variety of different animal and cell culture systems to try to determine which ones might be the best candidates for that. And I think from the perspective of my work in bringing in that diagnostic component. And so if we use some of Julie's therapeutics in the dogs that that Stephanie is able to identify for us at some point, can we measure whether or not we're having an impact and whether or not we're halting that formation of that amyloid that's associated with disease or not? And then taking those systems and broadening those out to other folks that are working in human diseases. Unfortunately, these diseases impact millions of lives and will continue to impact millions of lives, whether those be animal lives including humans or animal lives that include cervids, dogs, um, other species that are impacted mm-hmm. by these diseases. Yeah. So we're wrapping up here and I need to ask you the last question that I ask every guest on this season, which is, can you identify a major challenge in your field that you believe must be met in order to realize real increases in health span or healthy aging? Yeah, we have a one giant conundrum, and it comes back to that misfolded protein, whether it's infectious and transmissible or whether or not it's causing Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. We don't know what it looks like, and we're unable to know what it looks like because it 
it aggregates together in these big clumps and we're not able to bring it down to that monomer that one unit to be able to identify it identifying what it looks like would really help us better understand that mechanism of of conversion from the good to the bad form of the protein as well as how we can break that up and not permit that to happen so there have been a couple breakthroughs in, in the prion field in better understanding what that structure looks like but we still have a lot of work to do so I think that's probably number one the the number two one is a diagnostics and coming back to how can we determine when an individual starts developing a, a less healthy life um, based on amyloid production and if we were to develop therapeutics of whatever kind that might change that, how would we know that it's working? So two things, this, the protein structure itself, and then how to detect it in the easy to way detect it. Um, I, I would think of things like saliva and blood, um, which would be easy for, easier for us to access those samples from people. Yeah, yeah. I would encourage anyone listening to definitely go down a rabbit hole about prion diseases <laughs> on the internet because they are so fascinating and weird and different and misunderstood. Um, and I know you mentioned your earlier story that they were kind of discovered around like the 1960s or so. And that might sound like a long time for somebody who's listening, but in the world of science, that was yesterday. It was, and yeah. it was such a shift in the dog right I mean everything else that we knew before was totally different prions stand alone in their ability to cause an infectious disease without the advantage of the nucleic acid building blocks that take over the cell it's the structure that's being taken over by prions yeah it's just so weird yeah so weird so I'll do um one more thing if there's anything you want to plug for your lab or anything oh that's well I would plug the women in science network is what I would plug I would plug a community of individuals here at CSU and in the northern Colorado community that have been coming together for the past 10 years we're celebrating our 10 year anniversary this year and we have been working to support and increase the voices that are less well heard and so our big goal is inclusivity in science pass it on and i would invite anyone to go to our website if you plug in women in science colorado state university you'll find us and join us for future events yeah that's that's how you and i most know each other is is. through (laughs) planning board for the annual symposium and i'm just very lucky to get to know you and work on that with you well we're excited to have you join us too you've been a huge asset to what we're doing thank you (laughs) thank you (laughs) well candy thank you so much for coming i am just in love with this conversation i thought it was so fascinating so thank you for coming and talking to us today of course it was my pleasure to be here and thank you for asking me Thank you for listening to this episode of Living Healthy Longer, a podcast from the Center for Healthy Aging at CSU. Remember to follow us on social media at CSU Healthy Aging and visit our website at healthyaging.colostate.edu. We will see you next time.